Our topic for today is the five-legged table theory. Is it possible to build a Jewish world which allows for unity without uniformity? This is the first of three programs that are official community programs. Um, we have a second program tonight, I believe. Rabbi Rachel, is that correct? You'll be hosting at Temple Bethel, 7.15 p.m. Topic is 10 steps to understanding Israel today. And then tomorrow night, we'll be back here for our third uh, program, Leadership and Peoplehood. And look at Jewish models of leadership, their relevance in our time, and a vision of a central mission for Jewish leaders for the 21st century. Now, a little bit about Avram Infeld. I ha there's so much to say. I assume you all read the bio. So I will just tell you uh, one vignette, and that is, I have known about Avram Infeld, at least the name, for years, um, because I, you came across as a recommended speaker for CSP. So you're in my book of potential speakers. And then when Mike called, I said, oh, we gotta make it happen. But many of you probably don't know this, but I am South African by birth. I am a rare third generation South African, and when you hear Abraham speak, you'll notice he has an accent as well. And um, not only is he a fellow South African, but he was best friends with my uncle Colin, and he, maybe he'll tell you a little bit about that. And so when I mentioned that he was coming, my mother started to freak out. She was gonna fly out, but he knows my family, he knows my grandmother, um, and it's a pleasure to have him here. Abraham has invested a lifetime building Jewish identity and strengthening the state of Israel. He's been involved in a variety of programs. He's the founder and director of a, a succession of innovative and educational institutions, and today serves as a consultant on Tikkun Olam to the Reut Institute. As a, he's also a member of the faculty at the Mandel, Mandel Institute, and he has, um, he's a Limud International Ambassador. He's probably best known, at least to us, as international, what was your title with Hillel? International Director? President. International President, President of Hillel. Um, as I said, the page goes on and on. The short story is he is a world expert in contemporary Judaism um, and in contemporary Judaism and relationship to, relationship to Israel, where he lives right now. Where in Israel do you live? Jerusalem. He lives in the holy capital of Jerusalem. With that, thank you all for coming, and thank you for coming out here to Orange County. Um, I'm very happy to be here. I'm startled by the way in which he looks, he denies it, but he looks like his uncle. And his uncle was my closest friend. We moved to Israel together. We went through a war of school together. And so looking at you brings back, uh, he was a lot younger than you when he passed away, and uh, unfortunately he's right. So. Also, I have to make a correction. To what you said. We are the only two who do not have an accent. Everybody else <laughs> has an accent. I hope that by the end of the talk you will understand why I've called this the five-legged table. Some of you may have had an opportunity to look at the website, so some of what I'm going to say is going to be uh, uh, familiar to you. But let me tell you what for me is an issue that I'm trying to contend with. And that is the question of the lack of uniformity in the Jewish world. I think it's a very, very serious problem. People will always tell me, but Avram, the Jews were never uniform. I do not believe that that is true. I believe that Jews were uniform about one issue. And that issue is 
What does it mean to be a Jew? We were never uniform about how to Jew. We have books and books filled with different ways of how to Jew. But the basic concept of what it means to be a Jew was an almost uniform concept from the time of Mount Sinai until the emancipation, which for me are two central dates in the Jewish calendar. What happened at Mount Sinai was presenting this people that had left Egypt with a worldview, with a self-understanding that provided the sense of uniformity. What happened with the emancipation in Europe was the demise of the uniformity of the Jewish people. I think the story that Jews told each other and told others about themselves and taught themselves for generations was a story which sounded something like this. To be a Jew is to be a member of a particular people. This people were once upon a time slaves in Egypt. They came out of Egypt and they walked through a desert. In this desert they came to a mountain called Mount Sinai. They met with a being they called God. They signed a covenant with God. According to this covenant, he would be their God. They would be his people. He would look after them. He would give them rain in the right season. He would take them into their land. And they would keep his commandments. I really know, know of no other story about who the Jews were until 250 years ago other than that story. We were taken out of Egypt. We have this contract with God. And you know what happens? God keeps his side of the covenant. He takes us into our land. He gives us rain in the right season, but we sin. And because of our sins, we were scattered among the peoples of the earth. Living outside of Israel, in this narrative, in this story, is punishment. And therefore the story goes on and says because we are being punished by being exiled from our land it is our responsibility to keep ourselves distinct as a people to keep God's commandments to hope and pray that one day God will forgive us and if he forgives us what will he do? He will send the Messiah and what will the Messiah do? He will return us to the land of Israel. Cheaper than birthright.
but a one-way ticket only. Living outside of Israel is punishment. I was last week in a place called Beverly Hills, California. I saw the suffering of my people. <laughs> what a terrible punishment. You wake up in the morning, you can't decide whether you should swim in your indoor pool or your outdoor pool. It's not easy. So what happened in this world that something that was so self-evident to Jews is suddenly so eroded. What happens is modernity, the French Revolution, modern nationalism, modern liberalism, and the ability for the Jew living in a ghetto with this narrative and this mindset all of a sudden being offered the opportunity to leave the ghetto. What an amazing shock it must have been to these people who lived in ghettos not because the non-Jew had put them there, but because they wanted to live with their people. They were keeping God's commandments. They were hoping and praying that he would forgive them, and if he forgave them, what would he do? He would turn them to their land. And suddenly modernity comes on the scene. Laws begin to be passed. Things happen which afford them the opportunity of stepping outside of the ghetto. Why are we in what I regard as a very serious problem today? Because when offered the opportunity to leave the ghetto and to stop being different from those around us, different Jews made different choices about how to stop being different. That's probably the most important sentence in this lecture. Who are the Jews today? We are living different reactions of different Jews on how to respond to the, the invitation to stop being different. I'm going to talk tomorrow more about the opportunities and how Jews responded to the emancipation. I have a friend and a teacher, the rabbi and I were in the same class in 1972 with Rabbi Hartman, but right after that lecture I used to go to hear Elie Schweid. And Elie Schweid was giving a course on the responses of the Jews to the emancipation. It was a four-year course, four hours a week. Aris just clarified to me that I do not have that much time. <laughs> so I do not, can not go into the whole world of reactions. I want to touch very quickly on four reactions. Jews leave the ghetto. 
they're offered the opportunity to stop being different. Reaction number one of some Jews is, no! I don't want to be like you. I've been waiting 3,000 years for the Messiah. If it takes another 3,000 years, I'll continue to wait for him. Leave me alone. Get off my back. As a matter of fact, if you're going to talk to me about liberalism, about nationalism, about modernity, you frighten me. So I am going to go more deeply into my ghetto. I'm going to raise even higher the walls that separate me from you. I'm sure you all know the famous philosophical question of how many ultra-Orthodox Jews does it take to change a light bulb? Change? <laughs> Not even a light bulb. I'm going to go more deeply into my ghetto and I develop a philosophy which says Hadash Asur Yatura Anything that is new is in reality forbidden by Torah. I'm saying no to the world. Those Jews are not disappearing. They make up 18% of Israel's Knesset. They're in the opposition now, but they're in the Knesset. They're throughout the world. Stanford Hill, London, Antwerp, Belgium. I don't know where they are in Orange County, but I can find them in LA and in San Diego. Those Jews are still living today. Reaction number two very quickly was the exact opposite. I've been waiting for the Messiah for 3,000 years. He hasn't come. He ain't coming. <laughs> he doesn't even call. There was this famous song on the, on the Israeli heat parade, Hamashiach, Mohammed Sanfel. The Messiah doesn't even call. Why should I continue to wait for him? I'm getting beaten, I'm getting murdered, I'm getting blamed for everything under the sun. Now the opportunity presents itself for me to leave this world, become a part of the world around me, and begins reaction number two, which is assimilation as we know it today. I'm told by so many people, but wasn't there always assimilation in the Jewish world? There was always assimilation of groups of people who for ideological reasons left the Jewish people, but there was not this kind of mass movement of individuals simply stopping to be Jewish because the world allowed it. Reaction number one, I reject emancipation. Reaction number two, Reaction number three, many Jews try to assimilate. They're right. We can wear jeans. We can dress like them. We can go to universities. We can become like them. We can do business with them. But we can't accept their God. You know what? From now on, we are going to be just like those around us, but we are going to be different from them by religion only. 
And for the first time in Jewish history is an equation created which says Judaism equals religion. I am just like the non-Jew, I am distinct from him by my religion only. When Napoleon asked the Jews of France, who are you? They answer, we are Frenchmen of the Jewish religion. When they asked the British Jews who they were, they said we are Englishmen of mosaic persuasion. Thank God no one understands an Englishman. <laughs> And for the first time in Jewish history, there is the creation of an equation which says Judaism equals religion. I am Jewish by my religion. And one of the first things that happened the moment you make that equation, that Judaism equals religion, is the development of religious denominations. Where was the reform movement, the conservative movement, or the orthodox movement? 700 years ago. We didn't exist because we didn't define ourselves as a religion. It's only the moment you define yourself as a religion that you create religious denominations. Reaction number one, I reject the emancipation. Reaction number two, I embrace the emancipation and assimilate. Reaction number three, Judaism equals a religion. Reaction number four, and these are four out of many shades of gray, but these are four black and gay. Black and white reaction. Many Jews tried to assimilate. Some succeeded and others did not. Why did they not succeed? Because even though there were laws all over the place which says Jews can leave the ghetto, anti-Semitism didn't stop. And very often Jews tried to assimilate and did not succeed. And they had an amazing reaction to this. That reaction said they were willing to give up everything. But they weren't accepted. And a great reaction which said, you know what, Mr. Nanju? I cannot become one of you because you won't let me. Therefore, I'm going to become just like you. They didn't mean I'm going to become a Briton or a Pole or a Russian like you but I'm going to become Jewish the way you are British or Russian or Polish. You have an anthem. You have a flag. You have an army. You have a state. That's the way I'm going to be a Jew. I'm going to have an anthem. I'm going to have a flag. I'm going to have a state and I'm going to have an army excepting the girls in my army are going to be much better looking than yours. <laughs> and that in reality was the creation of modern Zionism. Do not allow Bush Emonim and the settlers on the West Bank to convince you that they created Zionism. Zionism was a secular movement par excellence. That's why it succeeded didn't wait for the Messiah. It said, Mr. Nanju, I cannot be one of you. I'm going to become just like you. Now, by the way, all four of those reactions live in the Jewish world today. 
at any meeting of Jews, you're going to find all four of them in the room. Those who are convinced that Judaism is a religion, today they're mostly from America. Those who are convinced that Judaism is a nation, they are those from Israel. Those who are trying to assimilate, who are both from Israel and America and the rest of the world. And those who are saying, I'm just going more deeply into my ghetto. And I'm cutting myself off from the rest of you. And am I raising my walls higher? And you try to draft me into your army. <laughs> All of those four reactions living side by side together. Now that's a reality of Jewish life. My late father was your grandfather's favorite, best friend. Always used to say, if there's something you can do nothing about, celebrate it. We can spend the rest of our lives sitting and crying. We're not uniform. <laughs> isn't that terrible? Or we can say, wow, isn't it wonderful? Look at this Jewish people. They are like the colors of the rainbow. But the real question facing the Jewish people today and not finding an answer to it is more dangerous than the Iranian bomb is the question, is it possible to be unified without being uniform? And that is probably the biggest question facing the Jewish people today. Is it possible for us to be unified without being uniform? It is a question that has bothered me since I was 12 or 13 years old. It took me many, many years of teaching and of reading and of studying and of writing to eventually come up with some theory that a year ago I was in Philadelphia. I went to to Penn University, and I see on the sign that there's a guest lecturer giving a talk on Infeld's theory of the five-legged table. I never knew that I had a theory, but I want to share this non-theory with you. People ask me today, what do I do for a career? And my answer is, I'm a Jewish carpenter. I try to build a table of five legs. I respond to any invitation I get to speak to fellow Jews. And I always start by talking about this question of, is it possible to be uniform without being unified? Is it possible to be unified without being uniform? And why do I talk about a five-legged table? Because a table with five legs is very, very sturdy. But I've seen tables meant for five legs that can stand on four. I've even seen tables meant for five legs that can stand on three. But you try to put a table for five legs onto two legs, it's going to tipple over. And on one leg, it's not even a table. So I spend my life going around saying to people, can I talk to you about the five legs of being Jewish? And could you perhaps 
find a way of internalizing in your lives at least three out of the five. Why three out of the five? Because if I said to you, Rabbi, choose two, and you, Rabbi, choose two, you could have nothing in common. But if you were each obligated to choose three, at least three, never mind how different we would be, we would always have something in common. This is my attempt to fight this battle for unity without uniformity. What are those five legs? First of all, I have to tell you a story. I come from a long line of very well-known physicists. I have an uncle, Leopold Infeld, who wrote books with Einstein. I have another cousin who was a physicist in Oxford, a cousin who was at Yale in physics. And the day that I was born, my late father knew for a fact that I am going to be the world's greatest physicist. Einstein, nothing <laughs> compared to my father's dreams about me. So when I eventually went to study at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and that's when we, I parted from your uncle because he went to the Technion, I went to study physics. And on the first day of school, I was sitting in the physics lab, looking out of the window, I saw this very, very cute young lady walking towards the physics department, walking towards the history department. And so I graduated in history instead of in physics. <laughs> She's now the great-grandmother of my great-branch and my 15th branch. But I've got to explain this to my father. He's waiting for me to put Einstein out of business. So I write my father a letter and I said, Abba, I've decided I'm not going to study physics. I'm going to devote my life to the study of Jewish history at the Hebrew University. I get that from my father an e an e a, a telex because we did not have emails in those days. I'm a little bit too old for that. I get that from him a telex. I can see from the size of the letters that he is furious. He wasn't mad at me anymore. He forgotten that I'm supposed to be a physicist. He was mad at the Hebrew University. He said, what? The Hebrew University of Jerusalem teaches Jewish history? Are they crazy? There is no such thing as Jewish history. Jews do not have history. Jews have memory. I had no idea what the heck he was talking about. Today, 50 years later, I can tell you my father was 100% right. You know what's the difference between history and memory? History is knowing what happened in the past. Memory is asking yourself, who am I because of what happened in the past? And therefore, it is not accidental. 
That's a phrase, that's a verb that appears more than any other verb in the Hebrew language and in our rituals and in our books is the verb zahor, zecher, zikaron, yizkor, remember, 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 remember. And we can get to crazy extremes. Try to imagine a young couple deeply in love with each other. They know they're going to spend the rest of their lives together. They get under the traditional kuppa. What do they do? They break a glass. Why? In order to remember the destruction of Jerusalem. People have been in this world for a long, long time. I've never met a couple who spent the first night of their marriage worrying about the destruction of <laughs> But you cannot create a new home. You cannot create a new Jewish anything without calling on memory. And that is why the first leg of being Jewish is the creation and development of a Jewish memory. Rabbis, to my mind, the purpose of Jewish education is how you take the single individual Jew and link their personal memory to the collective memory of the Jewish people. Through whichever interpretation you want to give it, but the purpose of education is the linking of the individual's personal memory to the collective memory of the Jewish people. And by the way, that is the only reason why Tabilit works. Birthright works. For the first time in their lives, they are brought into us. I was the first director of Birthright. I made sure that that was the aim of the program. Help them link to the memories. Help them link their personal memories to the collective memory of the Jewish people. Leg number one. <coughs> Leg number two. Whose memory? Who are we? Are we co-religionists? I don't think so. As a matter of fact, I know that we are not. If some of you knew what I believed in, you'd be shocked. And I'd probably be much more shocked to know what you believe in. Not believing in Christ does not make a religion. And if it does, we share it with 50 billion Buddhists or something around this world. There's a bank in New York. It used to be a successful bank. It was called the Chase Manhattan Bank. It wasn't a Jewish bank, despite the fact that it was so successful. <laughs> and the Chase Manhattan Bank had a slogan that every kid in New York knew. You found it on every train, on every bus, on every street corner. You had this amazing sign that said, 
You have a friend at Chase Manhattan. I mean, it cost you a fortune. But you have a friend at Chase Manhattan. When Bank Discount of Israel opened up its first branch in New York, they looked for a slogan. They wanted to attract, of course, Jewish customers. And they came out with this most amazing of slogans. You saw it. You heard it for an entire month, every hour on local radio and every four hours on local television. You heard this announcement of that discount from Israel and he said, you may have a friend at Chase Manhattan, <laughs> but we're Mishpoche. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, people, they hit the nail on the head. You know who the Jews are? We're a family! You know how I know we're a family? We're always fighting. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not such a joke, by the way. Where do the best fights always take place? In the family, because you care what a member of the family says. He said it, so what? You said it? Ah! But much more than that. I'm personally on a campaign that I'm not sure the rabbis will join me on. But in the years that I worked as president of Hillel for five work, years working with your young people, the thing which alarmed me and frightened me was the use of the term Converted Jew, referring to people who had joined us. I have never heard of anything more ridiculous in my life. And the interesting thing is that this morning, at another session I gave earlier this morning, I asked Jews who know Hebrew and English well. I said, can you translate, translate the word giyur? And they all said, conversion. And there's no connection between the word giyur and conversion. Giyur is a Hebrew word which comes from the Shoresh, from the, from the root, lagur. Yeah. Lagur. To live with. To tie your lot with. To be a family member with. As a matter of fact, Allah teaches us that you are never allowed to remind a convert of that converted. In the same way as you do not remind an adopted child that they are adopted. Because once you're part of the family, you're part of the family. And you can imagine how many times I've heard people say oh, very proudly, I'm a converted Jew, or she's a converted Jew, or he's a converted What is this? You can't convert to a family. You can be adopted by a family. And that's the business we should be in. By the way, there are some wonderful non-Jews I personally would love the opportunity to adopt some of them. 
that treat them and them as an adopted child with the love and affection that you give a child in a family. Because we are a family, where is it that we teach that sense of family? When do we talk about it? And B'nai Yisrael, that phrase, is the phrase that describes us. We are not Jews or Hebrews. We are children of Israel. And the whole sense of adoption in the letter of the Ramban, Ramban, to Avadia the Ger, who asks the Ramban, am I allowed to say, blessed are thou, Lord our God, God of my fathers, Isaac and Jacob, and he says, of course you are, because you now become a part of that Mishpacha. Not only do they adopt you, but you've now adopted the ancestors. Because we're a family. So leg number two is that sense of family. And by the way, from personal testimony, I can tell you if you talk openly to your kids about that, it makes so much sense to them. You know why? They very often do not open up to other people on the campus. I somehow managed to go and take people out for dinner and talk to students. And the question that kept coming up in these communities was, why do you expect me to be so involved with Israel? Since when does a religion have a state? And by the way, they're quite right. There is no religion in the world that has a state. Many states have a religion. There's only one religion that has something like a state, and that's the Vatican. But it's very interesting that the person who suggested that the Jews have the Vatican was a very good friend of ours by the name of Yasser Arafat, who said, out of the goodness of his heart, sweet man, he'll be happy to give the Jews two square miles in Jerusalem where they can have their Jewish Vatican and their Jewish Pope, or two Popes, an Ashkenazi Pope and a Slavic Pope, <laughs> to run the Jewish Vatican, but not a state. And we strengthen their hands. Leg number two is that sense of family. Leg number three. Very difficult. Very difficult. Rabbi, I'm going to have to repeat this tomorrow. Absolutely, I'll see you tonight, Val. Oh, tonight. <laughs> if memory is important to this family, we have to remember that our earliest memory was not just leaving Egypt and landing up in Ramat Gan. That's not what happened. We stopped somewhere on the way. We stopped at a place called Mount Sinai. And it was at Mount Sinai that this people printed their visiting card. They printed the way in which they understand the world. 
They spoke of their deep commitment to the creator of the universe. They spoke about the unique relationship that this people has. Not as individuals as you do in a religion, but as a people. I go to Shul and Yom Kippur. I go other times as well. I try to go every day. But it's ridiculous on Yom Kippur. The holiest day of the year, when you stand before God Almighty, you ask Him to forgive you for your sins. There's a prayer we say five times. It's called the Alchet. It's a long list of sins. And as you read out the sins, you beat your chest. If you're a passionate person like I am, it's very painful. <laughs> I can't touch myself for months afterwards. But I'll tell you a secret. At least half the things on that list, I've never done. I don't know why, maybe I never had the opportunity. <laughs> but I've never done them. So why am I beating my chest? Because we Jews do not pray in the singular. No al chet shechatati, el al chet We talk from a sense of community, from deeply immersed in community, not as an individual. And that's the tie and the covenant we tied with God at Mount Sinai. And on, our, on that visiting card, we talk about our values. And we talk about our behavior and our rituals and what's going to make us distinct and what's going to make us a part of the rest of the world. And our responsibility for tikkun olam. The Jews going to not forget that. Our responsibility to tikkun olam. Our forefather Abram signs a covenant with God, signs makes an agreement with God, God says to him three things. Go build the people. Build the family. Then go to the land. The Nivrachu Bachem Kol Mishpachot May all the peoples of the earth be blessed by your presence. We have a responsibility to the rest of the world. But we have a responsibility to keep ourselves distinct. Leg number one was memory. Leg number two, family. Leg number three, Mount Sinai. Leg number four, and I apologize, but there's a 4A and a 4B. 4A is the land of Israel, and 4B is the state of Israel. The land of Israel. And they're not the same thing, by the way. The land of Israel. Every single inch of the land of Israel, of all of the land of Israel, is part of the warehouse of Jewish memory. That is why we do not take birthright kids to Hawaii or even to Miami 
we take them to the land of Israel, where when they kick up the dust, they kick up the collective memory of this people. But you have to remember that the land of Israel was the warehouse of our memory even when the Turks ruled it, or the Romans ruled it, or the Crusaders ruled it. It's got nothing to do with politics. It's got to do with an inner sense of understanding the land of Israel. Ari and I were born in South Africa. He didn't grow up in South Africa. So Africa is not only another country, it's not only another continent, it's a different hemisphere. When you have summer, they have winter. When you have spring, they have no, they don't have fall. Only Americans have fall. They have autumn. <laughs> so typically American, a wheel, a, a leaf falls somewhere and you name a whole season after <laughs> We have autumn. But the strangest thing is, when do Jews begin to pray for rain in South Africa? On Shemini Yatseret. The last day of Sukkot. I don't understand that. <laughs> I have to go up again very scared. It was the beginning of the summer. I didn't want rain. I didn't always look like this. I used to play rugby, <laughs> which was a serious game. Not like this American football people covered up with a man. It's a man's game. I want to go and play. And all my friends are doubling for rain. And I got scared. What would happen if God, for a change, answered a prayer? Okay. I don't want rain. So I go to my father, and my father says, I said, Abba, why are they praying for rain now? And my Abba says, Our rain does not fall in South Africa. Our rain falls in the land of Israel. Now you try to grow up normal with an answer. <laughs> There is no possible way. No possible way. But being Jewish is not being normal. Being Jewish is being you. Being distinct. And the land of Israel is central to that concept of being a Jew. When you dream of salvation, you dream of salvation in the land of Israel. When you pray for rain, you pray for rain according to the seasons in the land of Israel. And the state of Israel, in my own lifetime, my friends, the adjective, or sorry, the noun that went along with the adjective Jewish, more than any other noun, when I was a little kid, long before he was six, was the noun refugee. Jewish refugee, Jewish refugees. We were a family of refugees 
wherever we were. Today there is no such animal as a Jewish refugee. And the word Jewish refugee can be removed from every dictionary for one reason only. Because there is a state of Israel. Don't ever forget that. And that is why Israel cannot be important only to the Israeli, but has to be important of the responsibility of the entire Jewish world. Because we remove from the world, from the dictionary, the concept of a Jewish refugee for the entire Jewish family. Leg number one was memory, leg number two was family, leg number three was Mount Sinai, leg number four, the land of the state of Israel, and Baruch Hashem, we're approaching the end, I come to leg number five. I don't know how many of you people, is there anybody here who comes from Omaha, Nebraska? Close. You really? In there. I get an invitation to come to a place called Omaha, Nebraska. I never knew that there was a state called Nebraska in America. <laughs> and I never knew there was a city named after my grandmother, Omaha. That's what we used to call her. But I get an invitation to Omaha, Nebraska. I go, I arrive there on a Sunday morning. They tell me your lecture is only late this afternoon. Avram, would you like to visit our Sunday school? I said, I'd love to visit your Sunday school. So they take me to this very beautiful building where they have a Sunday school. I walk into a classroom and I see this woman surrounded by a group of 18 or 20 young kids, 10 or 11 years old. And what is she doing? She's trying to teach these kids how to read a language they don't understand. Do any of you know what I'm talking about? Hebrew. I looked at the faces of these children. Again, I saw the suffering of my people. <laughs> I said to the teacher, why are you doing this? What did they do to you? She said to me, Avram, you don't understand. I only have a year or a year and a half until these kids borrow bat mitzvah. They have to pray in Hebrew. So I called over one of those kids. I'll never forget him because of his beautiful Hebrew name, Timothy. <laughs> I said, Timothy, why do you have to pray in Hebrew? Do you know what he said to me? Because God doesn't understand English. <laughs> By the way, that may be what we are inadvertently teaching our children. We have a stupid God. He doesn't understand English. President Bush almost understood English. God doesn't. <laughs> of course God does. He understood French. He understands French, Hungarian. You know why Jews pray in Hebrew? Because all peoples do important things in the language of their culture. Because the purpose of language is not only communication, but transferring concepts of culture.
from one generation to another. And that's true for every language and all the more so for Hebrew. Have any of you ever heard of the phrase to fall in love? You have? Sure. Can someone please explain to me what's the connection between love and falling? You don't find that in any Buddhist language. You don't find that in any Muslim language. You don't find that in any Jewish language. You find it in Christian languages because it comes from the cardinal sin of man. The first failing. Passion! Passion! You know what I'm talking about? I was in London last week. I said to them, Passion! They said, Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know how you say to fall in love in Hebrew, anyone? Lehit Ahev. Let's have a grammar lesson. What binyan is that? Hit Pahel. Lichtov is to write. Lehit Katev is to correspond. Lehov is to love. Lehit Ahev is to fall in love. It is both passive and active. It is always reflexive. It is always mutual. It depends on both sides. It's a different concept of love. You go and check whether they teach that in your Hebrew school. They should. Have you ever heard of the phrase Kadima? What does Kadima mean? How do you say before in Hebrew, anybody? Kodem. Just listen for a minute, people. Kodem and Kadima is the same root. It's the same root. And that's not accidental. Because built into our culture, there is no future without a tie to the past. And another name for the land of Israel is Eretz Kedem, which comes from the same root and makes that the integral part of our how do you say charity in Hebrew? No, there's no word for charity in Hebrew. We don't give charity. We're not a charitable people. We are a just people. We do what is right. That is why our word for is tzedakah, which comes from the Hebrew phrase tzedek, doing that which is just. I'll never forget when I first came to you, Israel, my friend Colin and I used to go every Friday to the old Knesset in Jerusalem. And there was a beggar there who was probably younger than I am, but I used to think he was about 600 years old then. He used to sit over there, we used to come every Friday and give him tzedakah. He had two boxes in front of him. And we wanted to put a shekel in the one box and he automatically took out 10 aburot and moved it to the other box. And I said, what are you doing? 
He said, that's my tzedakah. Even the poor have to give tzedakah. Everyone has to because it is the right, the just thing to do. Five central dates. I believe that if two things can happen, we can have a beautiful people. Number one, if we can persuade Jews to find a way of internalizing in their life at least three out of those five legs. And secondly, if we can train ourselves to respect the choice that was made by the other Jew. Thank you very, very much for listening to me. Underlying a lot of what you said was the notion of Mashiach, some notion of redemption, and I think that's even tied uh, to your notion of Mount Sinai. Uh, a lot of modern Jews don't see the world that way, don't see redemption, don't see Mashiach as part of their Judaism. Uh, it's clearest in this group that calls themselves humanistic Jews in this country. Uh, but there are many other Jews from Kaplan on who, who don't see Mashiach, don't see the supernatural redemption as a key part of the, what it means to be Jewish. How much of your plan, can I find three legs without that? Look, um, my people include Jews with great difficulty with the concept of Mashiach. I personally do not. That's why I said at least three legs. And can I, can I find three legs? That's my question. But I have no right to exclude from this family a Jew who accepts any, other, any of the other three. Now, it's not an easy thing to say. But if we want to survive as a people, and fulfill our commitments to this world as a people. And to make sense of the current existence of this people with the state that they have. We have to be able to recognize the choices that the individual Jews will, will do. I have a friend. He's 5,000 years old. He's just celebrating his 5,000th birthday. And I want to join him in the celebration. But he's married to this woman. I really don't like her. I don't have anything to do with her. I really love this guy. I mean, we've been friends for years. Am I not capable of continuing a relationship with him just because he's been having an affair with someone that I don't like or can't accept for 5,000 years? 
I have the same problem with the Jewish people. My father was an atheist. He was a Jewish atheist. He always used to say, I'm an atheist, Baruch Hashem. Because <laughs> <laughs> as a Jew, you can't talk to me. But my father said to me, it's important for me to be a part of this people. And the fact is that these people have been having an affair with God for 5,000 years. Now, if I want to continue the relationship with my friend, I can't deny her existence. I can't. I cannot accept her. I can't worship her. I can like her. I can dislike her. But the people I want to be a part of have been having an affair with her for 5,000 years. And that's why my father, consciously, was able to say I'm an atheist, Baruch Hashem. It was even worse because he was bringing me up is to say things like, I'm not sure there's a God. I don't think there's a God. I'm really not sure we were ever in Egypt. But the one thing I'm positive about is that he took us out of there. <laughs> now you try to drop <laughs> He was willing to accept the narrative of the people in order to live with his people, even though theologically he could not live with his belief. I really believe that Kaplan at a certain stage with precisely the same issue. And more than he personally went through the issue, he met Jews who were profoundly incapable <coughs> for accepting a Jewish understanding of the God. Yeah. So we have a Jewish day school in our community that's a community day school. We have most spectrums. Uh, and in some ways it's our greatest challenge, but in other ways it's our greatest joy. Any thoughts or reflections on how you keep that together and how you balance some of these things in a day school context? It's not right for a guy who doesn't know the school <laughs> to come to community and tell you what you're not doing right for school. So let me tell you what I would do if I went somewhere else and wanted to create an educational system. I would start with preschool and, and kindergarten. And have the only language of preschool and kindergarten be the Hebrew language. Kids are capable of doing it. The charter schools in America prove that. Kids can grow up bilingual. If you understand a language, you're a different person. So I'd start with that. Because when you understand a language, the text you read makes a completely different, develops a completely different relationship to you and you to it. And by the way, 
good teachers at the age of five and take kids at the age of five and six and completely solve the problem of Hebrew that we don't succeed to do in 12 years of education. And when a person speaks a language, as I said, they're a different person. But then when they come to learn, and they already know the language, that understanding that, that what they are studying, they are studying a culture of a people that has a relationship with God, but not a religion. Whitehead writes, religion is that which a man does in his moments of aloneness. I think Judaism is the exact opposite. Judaism you never do in your moments of aloneness. You do it in your moments of togetherness, in your moments of community. That's why it's not a religion. You can't do it without other members of the community. I would teach people of the phrase a converted Jew. Meaning what the phrase converted Jew means. You know what a converted Jew is? Someone who converts out. It's a legal term in the Talmud. It's not a gay. He's a Yehudi Muma. Strange. Rabbi Strange. The guy who leaves us is called a Jew. A Yehudi Mumar. There was a conference at Tel Aviv University recently on the subject of where was God during the Holocaust. Don't worry, they didn't solve the problem, but they had a conference. <laughs> and the Pope writes to the Prime Minister of Israel and says, I heard of this conference and I'm going to send a personal representative to this conference. And who does he decide to send as his personal representative to this conference? The Cardinal of Paris, Cardinal Roustiget. Now the problem is that Cardinal Roustiget used to be Aharon Roustier, a very nice Jewish boy. He was very religious, he was so religious he became a Catholic. <laughs> became a Catholic priest. Became a Cardinal of Paris. Now the Pope wants to send him to this conference. Chief Rabbi Dao gets up on national television, turns to the Pope and says to the Pope, Mr. Pope, can't you send us one of yours? You've got to send us one of ours. <laughs> <laughs> the Cardinal of Paris! He's a member of our people. Not a very good one. <laughs> when a kid understands that someone who joins us is a Jew not a converted Jew but a Jew and someone who leaves us is a Jew the only sociological structure that I know that fits that is that of a family 
How do you join a family? You're either born into it or you're adopted by it. How do you leave a family? You don't! You may think you have. The same thing with being a Jew. If a kid can grow up in a system whereby he gets the sense of language, he gets the sense of belonging to a family, everything else makes sense. Because when you do that, you start dealing with the memory of this family, and there you will find God, and you will find Israel, and you will find Tzedakah, and you will find Tikkun Olam, not as religious precepts, but as cultural precepts of my people. I'm not sure I answered your question, but my late father said, if you've got something to say, say it. If it doesn't answer their question, it's a sign they asked the wrong question. There's <laughs> <laughs> time for one last question. Do we have one more? I have a clarification question. When you sure. referred to the emancipation 250 years ago, what particular historical Thing, you I have no. I, oh, <laughs> what? What? When you refer to the emancipation. Uh, uh, oh, well, I mean, I you're asking. I think you're asking which one I have chosen. No, no. Well, I didn't know what. I'm talking about the, the beginning of modernity, the opening up of uh, societies, the enabling of people to be together, which all happened around 250 years oh, ago. So just the time period, and then sort Yeah. It's not a particular I can't give it a picture. Oh, I thought it was a specific. Thank you very much. Thank you all.